You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. For the last couple thousand years, the baseline for followers of Jesus has been that we trust and submit to the Bible. This has historically been the case, that we trust and submit to the Bible, and we believe that what we are holding in our hands when we read the Bible is God's direct revelation to us. We believe that we are reading the very words of God. Even in the Old Testament, this was how they saw the scriptures as God communicating to his people directly, which, if you think about it, that's a big claim to make, right? If you grew up in the South or if you grew up in the church, these are things about the Bible that we tend to take for granted. But when you actually read the Bible, when you actually read it, there are things that are hard to understand, difficult to comprehend. There are things that seem outright outlandish to me when I read the Bible. So then why do Christians, myself included, trust and submit to the Bible? That's what we're getting at this morning. Now, before we get into why we trust the Bible, we just need to define our terms really quick to understand what we're talking about. So what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is a library of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, ranging from about 1400 B.C. to 100 A.D., written across different geographic locations, written in different languages. You have Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You also have different literary genres. You have poetry, and you have history, and you have theological discourse, and you have apocalyptic literature. You have love songs, and all of these different stories from all of these different authors over the course of 1500 years are all ultimately writing about God redeeming a people for himself in the person and work of Jesus. To cite 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then verse 16, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now to be clear, this is just what the Bible claims about itself. And if you're a naturally skeptic person like me, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. It's just these are the claims the Bible is making about itself. So then why do we as Christians submit to the Bible and not just any and all books that claim to be of divine origin, right? Uh, three reasons I'm going to give you this morning why we should trust and submit to the Bible, all right? Number one is Jesus. So as we said last week, Christianity is the only religion grounded on one historical event that if it did happen, then that means we need to take this seriously. That if Jesus historically rose from the dead and we looked at the evidence last week, then he gets to define reality with a capital R. He gets to define the shots, whatever he says goes. But if he didn't historically raise from the dead, then this is all, according to 1 Corinthians 15, this is all just a big waste of time. We all need to do something else. If Jesus historically didn't raise from the dead, we need to stop right now and go have brunch or something. There are better things that we can do with our time. 
But if Jesus historically rose from the dead, then we need to listen to the things that he says. Some of you are thinking, oh, brunch, that sounds awesome. Sorry to distract you. But when you look at Jesus' words, you see over and over again that he trusted and submitted to the Bible. He had the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible at that time. And just we're going to do a quick glance at how much Jesus believed in the authority of the Bible. So point one, Jesus taught from the Old Testament and defended it. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament directly about 78 times. Now, there's a lot of indirect references and implications he makes towards the Old Testament, but just as far as direct quotes, copy and paste, he says he quotes the Old Testament some 78 times. To give you a couple of examples, one is found in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. This is Jesus. He's debating with the religious leaders at the time, and then Jesus says, verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So this is Jesus directly quoting Psalm 110. And what's also really interesting here is, look at that verse again. Look at verse 36. Who does Jesus say wrote the Bible, specifically Psalm 110? Who wrote it? Was it David or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes. All of the above. C. Yes. But uh, this is something pretty revealing, and in fact, the biblical authors always assumed this, that God, used through the Holy Spirit, moved, into, moved through the human authors to communicate what he wanted to communicate. The big theological word is called dual inspiration. So notice, it, when Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, he doesn't see the Bible as being an invention. He doesn't say, David, speaking from his own experience, David speaking from his own cultural biases. He also doesn't see the Bible as dictation either, as though David fell asleep with a pen in his hand and then he just woke up and just magically Psalm 110 appeared. No. Uh, but rather, how Jesus and how the biblical authors have always understood it God through the Holy Spirit moving through the human authors to communicate the very word of God. Or to give you another one, we don't have time to look at this, but Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by the, de by the devil in the wilderness. He's fasted for 40 days straight, and the devil tempts him three times. And every time Jesus defends the devil, despite all of the resources available to him, his tactic is to fight against the devil by quoting scripture. He quotes the Old Testament three times in a row. He says, it is written, it is written. It is written. And so the assumption is that this is revealing to us that Jesus was committed to the Bible. He trusted the Bible. He submitted to the Bible. He saw it as authoritative. And those are just a couple examples, but you get the idea. The fact that Jesus is constantly teaching and quoting the Bible goes to show, just like any other rabbi at his time, Jesus probably had large chunks, if not the entire Old Testament, committed to memory. Not only does he quote or refer to the Hebrew Bible, we also see him in the New Testament defending it. So throughout the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have these religious leaders known as the Sadducees, and they lean on the, on the theological left. 
and they think Jesus takes the Bible way too seriously, and so they try to make fun of him and trip him up by quoting verses or setting up theological scenarios. And you also have the Pharisees who lean on the theological right, who think Jesus doesn't take the Bible seriously enough, and so they try to trap him and make fun of him and cite verses to try to trip him up. But with both sides, Jesus is always very relaxed and calm and collected and always quotes scripture in order to defend the authority of the Bible. Which, side note, is comforting to know. If anyone makes fun of you for believing the Bible, uh, they made fun of Jesus too. So you're in good company. Welcome to the club, right? But along with that, Jesus taught the Old Testament as being about him. That's the next point. Jesus taught the Old Testament as being about him. Jesus, in his life and ministry, says that the Hebrew Bible all points to him. He, comes, uh, he says that it's ultimately fulfilling the Old Testament is being fulfilled through him. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, just a shorthanded way of saying the Old Testament, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Again, another shorthanded way of saying the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. This word fulfill means to bring to completion what it is talking about. Jesus is saying he is the key to understanding and interpreting and unlocking the Old Testament. He understands the Old Testament is really hard to navigate and to understand, but if you really want to understand the Old Testament, you have to first start with Jesus. So all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is saying things like how he's the greater Abraham. He is greater than the leader of the Jewish faith. He says how he is a greater David, David being like the greatest king of Israel's history. He's saying he's a greater David. He's saying he's a greater Solomon, the wisest person that was ever on the planet. Jesus says he is better than him. Jesus says he's a greater temple, the physical manifestation of God's presence in the temple. And Jesus says he is better than that. To where if you really want to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand him. Where it gets really fun, and this brings us to our next point, Jesus said that the Old Testament was ultimately predicting him. All right, this is where it gets really crazy for a sec. When you look at the Old Testament, there are messianic prophecies. In other words, these were future predictions about the coming Messiah and what he would do. For example, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be betrayed, that he would die by crucifixion. One scholar noted that there was about 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, all of which Jesus fulfilled. And just think about the odds for a moment. So one mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, says the odds of Jesus fulfilling these prophecies. This was a mathematician with lots of time on his hands. He said the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight out of the 300 prophecies is one out of 100 quadrillion. Now, you probably know what quadrillion is. I had to Google that. It was new information for me. The odds of Jesus fulfilling 48 out of the 300 prophecies is, I'm sorry, the odds of fulfilling 48 of the 300, it's 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Lots of zeros. If you don't know what that means, just a lot of them. And then the odds of Jesus fulfilling all 300, he actually couldn't figure out. I think his computer exploded or something, but you get the idea. Next, Jesus commissioned the writing of the New Testament. Jesus commissions the writing of the New Testament. 
Where Jesus teaches, defends, and fulfills the Old Testament, he also commissions it specifically to his disciples, the people who literally saw him, who were eyewitnesses to his life and ministry. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's talking directly to his disciples. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. So it's also really interesting to notice Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is going to move through you for you to write out Scripture, just like he said in Mark chapter 12. Many biblical scholars point to John 14 as Jesus alluding to the fact that the disciples are going to write the New Testament, and that's exactly what the disciples did. All of the books of the New Testament were either written by a disciple or a close companion of one of Jesus' disciples, including Paul, who Jesus commissions in Acts chapter 9, which is really just interesting to note because lots of people have problems with Paul, but Jesus commissions him in Acts chapter 9. So if you have a problem with Paul, you have a problem with Jesus. Add this all together, it's pretty clear. Jesus viewed the Bible, both the Old and the New, as the Word of God, pointing forward to him in the, New, in the Old Testament and pointing back to him in the New Testament. Jesus, who historically entered into human history, died on a cross, rose from the dead, put his trust in the Bible. He saw it as authoritative. He listened to the Bible and followed it, and Jesus says we should too. Or as one author, Andrew Wilson, put in his book, Unbreakable. By the way, uh, this book is available on our website, whyimachristian.com. It's like $3 to buy on Amazon. It takes like 40 minutes to read. It's a great book. Would highly recommend. He says it like this. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So that's one reason why Christians trust and submit to the Bible. Jesus did. For the record, it's the most important one to me as well. But you might be sitting there thinking you just got Jesus juked. And you don't like that? Like, why should we trust the Bible, Jesus? All right. Well, we have more points, so bear with me. Point number two, the quantity, quality, and accuracy of the historical documents. Why should we trust and submit to the Bible the quantity, quality, and accuracy of the historical documents? So some of what you might hear from larger culture is that we don't have the original manuscripts, that... Because we don't have the original manuscripts, you can't really trust what you're reading in front of you is what God wanted to say. It's just a copy of a copy of a copy of a translation of a translation. And people will often use the analogy of the telephone game. If you were born after the year 2000, a telephone, it's like a smartphone, but you put in the wall, it's crazy. But the telephone game, how the game goes, is one person comes up with a sentence or a message or whatever, whispers it to the second person, that person then whispers it to the third person, and just on and on it goes to where by the time you get to the last person, they say what the message is out loud, and it's way off from what the first person said, and everyone just laughs and has a great time, because that's what you did back then, right? But people will say, this is why we can't trust the Bible, because it's ultimately a telephone game. We can't trust what we have in our hands today. So how do we know then that that's not what happened in the Bible? 
I am so glad you asked me that question. All right. Uh, it is true that we don't have the original manuscripts, but if you look at the evidence we do have, all of the copies of the Old Testament and New Testament, you see, unlike any other piece of literary work in the history of the world, that what we have is unbelievably reliable. More than any other community, the Jewish and Christian community went to great stakes to preserve the original writings. Side note, if you want to dive more into this, go to our website. There's a two-hour lecture called The Making of the Bible, and just nerd out. It's, it's great stuff. We're not going to get into it, but just for all you nerds out there, there you go. Uh, to give you an overview of why the New Testament is reliable, I just want to start with the New Testament because that's the easiest one to figure out. When you look at the New Testament, we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 8,000 Latin manuscripts, and 1,000 manuscripts in other languages. Among all of these manuscripts, there's about a 99.5% congruence among all of them. So in other words, if you were to stack these thousands of manuscripts on top of each other, you see that they agree 99.5% accuracy. And you find no other work of literature or history preserved in the same way the Bible has been preserved. So just compare this to other documents and books circulating in and around that time. We've got a chart for us. There you go. Here are some other works circulating in and around the time of the New Testament. And you see the date it was written to the earliest discovery of the earliest copy and how many copies we have. All right. So look at that and you see that the New Testament, it's pretty staggering when you look at the quantity and quality of the New Testament documents that what we have is pretty remarkable. Now, if you are the one person in the room who may have noticed you might be saying to yourself, well, wait a sec. You say the New Testament's supposed to be a historical document, and Plato didn't write history, sir. Neither did Aristotle. If you are the one person in the room that caught that, I'm so glad that you caught that. I have a second chart for you. Boom. These are other historical works circulating in and around the time of the New Testament. Second chart. You didn't see that coming. Boom. In your face. Simply put... If someone seeks to eliminate the trustworthiness of the New Testament because we don't have the original manuscripts, then to be, to be consistent, you would also have to dismiss almost the entire canon of Western literature and ancient histories and pull everything from off the bookshelves and out of classroom discussions. You have to play fair. If you're going to dismiss the New Testament, you have to dismiss everything else. All right, But we don't do that. And real quick, this was mentioned last week, but if you just look at the writings of the early church fathers, you don't even look at the manuscripts, just at the writings of the early church fathers and pull from all the verses they are citing in their works, you can reconstruct the New Testament by about 95%. All right, pretty incredible. You also notice in this chart, the earliest manuscripts we have of the New Testament were written within 100 years of the events of the New Testament to where there was unanimous consensus and agreement that what we have in our New Testaments is exactly what the disciples had in mind. So despite all of the Da Vinci Code fans out there or despite that really bad documentary that you saw on the History Channel, there is no secret conspiracy that the early church tried to pull a power play by making sure they got their way when it comes to the books of of the Bible. Rather, when the Council of Nicaea came together in 325 AD, they simply affirmed what they already knew to be primarily true, and they came together because there was lots of fake gospels circulating hundreds and hundreds of years later. 
Henry Gamble, a New Testament scholar, and as far as I could tell, not a Christian, says this. He says, the New Testament was not self-consciously created by the church, either as a response to external pressures or as a means to some end, but arose naturally and spontaneously from the inner life of early Christianity, above all in context of worship and instruction. Now, that's the New Testament, okay? Admittedly, the Old Testament is a bit tougher because it's considerably older. And for the longest time, we had a couple major pieces of evidence that helped us construct the Old Testament. But for the longest time, we didn't have manuscript evidence predating the time of Jesus in Hebrew, in the original language that the Old Testament was written. So we had the Masoretic text, which was in Hebrew, but that was written around, we have thousands of manuscripts, 600 to 1200 AD. So it's like way past the time of Jesus. And then we had the Septuagint, which was written about 250 BC, thousands of copies from 250 BC to 70 AD of the Old Testament, but it was in Greek. It was like, oh man, we don't have anything predating the time of Jesus in Hebrew. What do we do? And lots of Bible skeptics were like, see, I mean, this is all just made up. You can't even find anything predating the time of Jesus in Hebrew until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. And this, this story is crazy. This is like real-life national treasure, real-life Goonies kind of stuff. But the story goes, in 1946, there was a shepherd boy in the Middle East, and he was throwing rocks into caves, because that's what you do to pass the time if you're a shepherd boy in the Middle East in 1946, is you're just throwing rocks into caves. And he's doing this for a while, and he hears this loud smash, and he's like, uh-oh, what did I just do? So he goes into the cave to see, what did I just do? And he finds that he smashed this giant clay pot, and he looks inside the clay pot, and there's an ancient scroll. And then he looks around him, and he sees more clay pots filled with more ancient scrolls. And then, turns out, this is considered one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. It's just this endless cave system with all of these thousands upon thousands of clay pots, with these thousands upon thousands of scrolls, some of which include the Old Testament written in Hebrew, predating to about 250 B.C. It's pretty incredible. Uh, Along with that, if you take the Masoretic text from 600 AD, the Septuagint in 250 BC, and the Dead Sea Scrolls from about 250, 300 BC, and if you were to overlay all of that together, you find that it is all agreeing with itself. There's no major theological discrepancies, no major contradictions. Any discrepancies you find, for the most part, are just misspellings or a misplaced word or a noun instead of a pronoun, almost all of which are cited in the footnotes of your Bible. Okay, So you have Jesus and the historical documents backing up the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible. All right, So let's just take a pause really quick. That was just a 20-minute just content dump for a second. All right, In light of all of that evidence, there is still pushback that people have when it comes to the Bible. The biggest pushback is, well, what about all the contradictions of the Bible? Yeah, okay, you've shown me evidence, but it seems like this is contradicting that, and that's contradicting that. So what, what can you do about that? In fact, uh, one person constructed that there are about 475 contradictions in the Bible. 
to that, I would say just because two passages appear to be contradictory don't actually mean they are contradictory. In fact, many of these quote-unquote contradictions can be quickly resolved through understanding the context of the passage or understanding the purpose or the genre of the passage. If you want some good resources, we have a couple in the lobby as well as on the website. We have Norman Geisler's The Big Book of Bible Difficulties that he just works through each one bit by bit. Also, the Apologetic Study Bible. You can look at that on your own. But still, the fact that these can be just quickly resolved for the most part, you just kind of wonder then, well then, why is there still so much pushback against the Bible? Why is there still just so much controversy with the Bible in light of all of the evidence? And it's because 99% of the time, what I've discovered is that 99% of the time, the issue people have with the Bible is not some textual issue or one contradiction that they just couldn't resolve. It's because if the Bible is really true, then that means we need to follow it. And we don't naturally want to do that, right? Which leads me to the third reason why we should trust and submit to the Bible is its spiritual power. It's spiritual power. So I know it's been luxury the last 25 minutes. Let me just preach at you for the last 10, okay? Number three, spiritual power. Andrew Wilson, again, in his book, Unbreakable, says, let's be honest, the scriptures can be difficult, okay? Let's just all admit the Bible is hard to understand, right? Sometimes the difficulties come from within the text themselves. Accounts vary, theology develops, tensions exist, and authors bring different perspectives on things. Not to mention the fact that all the texts were written in languages and cultures which are completely different from ours. In my experience, though, most of these difficulties are fairly easy to resolve. With a mixture of study, imagination, and honesty. They can make people puzzled, but they rarely make people angry. The things that get people really riled up, at least in our day, are areas where the Bible, where Scripture challenges our deeply held beliefs or where Scripture is challenged by them, depending on which way you look at it. When you get into conversations about the Bible, you find the biggest challenges for most people are not over issues where the Bible is unclear, but over issues where the Bible is very clear and people don't like it. Judgment, miracles, sex, things, things like that. So I just gave you a bunch of manuscript evidence for why you can trust the Bible. We looked at the nerdy charts, and I talked about how Jesus trusted and obeyed it, and we should too. However, it's been my experience just in my life and having done ministry for a little over 10 years and having friends of mine in high school and in college who loved Jesus, who now don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore. Most of the problem with the authority of Scripture has nothing to do with manuscript evidence. It has nothing to do with translation issues or discrepancies or whatever. So much of our distrust of the Bible is that we just don't like what it says. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City who we quote a lot in this series, said that whenever someone from his church who's been faithfully following Jesus, who's been a part of his church for a while, uh, wants to meet up with him, they might say something along the lines of, you know, Pastor Tim, I came across some Bible difficulties that I just can't resolve. And I came across this contradiction that I can't just figure out in my mind, and I found this theological discrepancy, and because of that, I am walking away from the church and Jesus altogether. To which Pastor Tim Keller's response most of the time is to nod and say, so, who are you sleeping with? 
which is a baller move, right? Like he's in his 70s. He gets to say stuff like that. I can never say stuff like that. Just give me 40 years and I'll be throwing grenades. It's going to be fun. But that's just a funny way of really saying a true reality that when our view of the world or our sinful desires or our wants or needs goes up against what Scripture says is right and true and good, sometimes it's a lot easier on our conscience to say, well, it must be lost in translation. It must be a theological discrepancy. It must be something to do with the ancient languages. Rather than just being honest and saying, you know, if this is true, then that means I'm a sinner and I have to follow what the Bible says and I don't want that, so see you later, Jesus, I'm out. But if you've rejected Jesus because he says something that bothers you or you disagree with him about some issue, I would say you've gotten it backwards. If he actually is God and rose from the dead, then you should start there. Start with the fact that Jesus historically rose from the dead. Now go uncover what he has to say about the Bible. And if he is really God, you should just go ahead and assume he's going to think things that are different than how you think. He's going to do things different than how you would do it. And if we're being honest, there's probably stuff all of us wish weren't in the Bible that's actually in there. So if you lean on the political left, you might love the stuff the Bible has to say about welcoming in the refugee or loving your neighbor regardless of their religious background or stewardship over creation or creating welfare systems to help the needy or seeking after racial reconciliation. You love that stuff, but we might rather do away with the stuff the Bible has to say about gender or heterosexual marriage or the exclusivity of Jesus. Or if you lean on the political right, you might love the stuff the Bible has to say about having a hard work ethic and obeying authority. But when it comes to the stuff the Bible has to say about generosity and hospitality and confessing sin, that's when we would rather downplay or dismiss those parts of the Bible that we don't like. But here's the reality. You don't want other people to have that same pick and choose mentality or leeway towards the Bible that you want for yourself. So to give you some examples, the guy who is physically or emotionally abusing his wife, you don't want him to dismiss Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5 that tells you you should love and cherish and sacrifice for your wife. You want him to be confronted and convicted to obey the Bible. Or the business owner who is taking advantage of his employees for his personal greed and gain, you want him to obey Proverbs 11 and Ephesians 6 that says you should be a good manager to your employees. You want him to be confronted and convicted. Or the person who keeps gossiping and spreading lies about you. You want her to read Ephesians chapter 4 that says you should build up with your words and not tear down. You want them confronted and convicted to obey the Bible. Or the racist down the street, you want him to obey what Galatians 3 says, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Or Genesis 1 that says we are all made in the image of God. You want him confronted and convicted with what the Bible has to say. Or that country or that culture on the other side of the world that treats people as lesser than human beings. You want them to obey what Leviticus 19 says, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. You don't want other people to reject the Bible. You want them to be convicted, to be brought under its authority, to submit their lives to it and obey it so that they don't destroy themselves and others. And yet, when you want to reject parts of the Bible you don't like, what you're really saying is you want to be the exception. That you want to be the exception. 
to stand out from underneath it, to get to pick and choose what you want to obey, what you want to follow, what you want to be shaped by, and explain away all the other stuff that you don't like. And listen, I want you to hear me on this. If you only accept and trust and follow the parts of the Bible that line up with what you already think, that already fit into your worldview, that already fits into your chosen lifestyle, that whatever is easiest for you, and you never let the Bible disagree with you to submit to it, then you rob yourself so much of the power in your Christian life. And if you do that, if you just pick and choose the things that you like and the things that you don't like, then why should anyone follow it at all? But you've got to play fair. If you're going to dismiss certain things that you don't like, then why should anyone else? If you don't allow the Bible to confront you the same way you want it to confront others, you will simply be a captive to your culture, doing and thinking whatever the loudest and most influential voice tells you to do, and you will always be susceptible to your cultural blind spots. And you will never grow as a Christian if you only follow the parts of the Bible that agree with you. Guaranteed, you will never grow if you only pick and choose the things that you like. And that's where the Bible leads us. A submission to a higher authority that brings us into contact, into interaction with a real spiritual power and real spiritual authority. An authority and power that can tell us we're wrong and can show us a better way. An authority and a power that can contradict us, that can tell us the right ways of thinking that can tell us how to live our lives. And when we submit to God's word that, and to follow Jesus, that's what we're doing. We're saying, hey, you're the authority and I'm not. You get to call the shots, not me. And rather than us challenging the Bible, we allow the Bible to challenge us. To tell us that we're wrong. Because if we don't, we will never grow. We will always be stagnant constantly uh, selfish and letting our inner desires and letting our culture and letting our comfort tell us what to think and what to do. And we will never be a person of love that Jesus wants to use if we constantly assist, insist on our own authority. And that's what Jesus calls us to, to repent and to believe, to give up our ways of thinking, to give up our view of thinking we are right and to take on Jesus's yoke to take on Jesus' authority. Jesus, God incarnate, sinless, perfect, and human, he submitted to the authority of the Bible. And if we want to be a people who look like Jesus, who radiate with the love and peace and joy of Jesus, that means we need to submit under the same authority as he did, to trust and submit to the Bible. Love to close us out in prayer, and then we'll respond to in some worship and communion. So pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you have conquered death. Thank you that you are God in the flesh. That when we look at all the evidence, we see that uh, Christianity is the best explanation. That you really are who you said you are. And because of that, you get to call the shots. And we see you submitted under the authority of God's word. And Jesus, because you're God and you get to call the shots, we want to be a people who look like you. And that means submitting under the word too. So God, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in us for those who follow you. 
Will you make us into a people who love your word, who submit to your word, that even when things are difficult, when things are hard to read or interpret or understand, or even when life feels difficult and hard to understand, that we trust in the authority of who you are and what you trusted. Jesus, we, we ask that. Make us people marked by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.